Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. And may the Lord bless us to cover these 14 verses and to learn the lessons that He has recorded there for us in this judgment of another two nations, neighbor to Israel. Isaiah 17. God destroyed the confederation of two nations that had joined together against Judah. Judah was what he called O Emmanuel in 8.8 of Isaiah so far. Judah is because of the anointing in 10.27. But two nations had joined together against Judah, Israel of the ten tribes, Judah of the two tribes, and Israel of the ten tribes, called Israel or Ephraim in the Bible, here it's going to be Ephraim, joined with Syria, the neighbor to the north. So in the map that I sent you, north, east of Israel or the ten tribes is Syria with a capital at Damascus. And Israel's capital was at Samaria. And so the ten tribes joined with Syria to fight Judah. And it terrified Ahaz, and we learned all about that in chapter 7 of Isaiah. But and Ahaz, not trusting God, even though Isaiah came to him and said, The Lord's able to deliver you. Would you like a sign? I won't take a sign. I'm a holy man. I don't want to tempt the Lord. He was lying all through that. And so the Lord said, I'll give you a sign anyway. A virgin shall conceive. We love the sign. But he gave the sign that, we're, that we benefit from to point out that before the child will have grown up enough on baby food, remember? Assyria will have already come and taken away those enemies. Because Ahaz looked to Assyria for help instead of to the Lord. And so I just want to remind you of some of the things we've already learned about the ten tribes in the north called Israel or Ephraim and them joining with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, two totally different nations. Syria, just north, still there today, still called Syria, still capital in Damascus because God didn't utterly destroy it. When God says utterly destroyed and to be turned into Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what happens? It looks like the slides I showed you of Babylon. It's nothing but mounds. But when God doesn't say that, and I'm just going to turn it into a pile of rubble without any other descriptive qualifying adjectives, then it can be rebuilt. And it was rebuilt. And and it's still there today. And it's one of the great cities of Syria, if not the greatest city, most prosperous, beautiful, several million people in the metropolitan area and so forth. But here we are in chapter 17. God destroyed the confederation of those two nations, Israel or Ephraim and Assyria. I'm going to call them Ephraim. Okay, I'm going to call them Ephraim. If I slip and call them Israel, you should know where I'm going because when I refer to Judah, I'm going to call them Judah. But I I want you to learn these Bible words. So when you run into Ephraim, why was it called Ephraim? Ephraim was a special tribe of the ten and it became the dominant tribe just like you never read about Judah and Benjamin. And they're never called Benjamin because Benjamin was inferior to Judah. Judah had the scepter all the way from Genesis chapter 49 and had the ruler of David's family in it. So it's always called Judah. And so Israel sometimes is called Ephraim because Ephraim was not as dominant 
in Israel as Judah was between those two tribes. And so it's called Ephraim or it's called Israel, and you've got to get used to that. It's never called the ten tribes, though if you read around, you'll find out that it was made up of ten tribes. It's just not called that by name. I say that for your benefit. So God destroyed that confederation of Ephraim, of the ten tribes, joining together with Syria against Judah. God destroyed it, and that's what we're going to read about in Isaiah 17. But it starts off with the burden of Damascus. It starts off with the burden of Damascus, and the Lord's going to spend most of his time talking about Ephraim, because the two of them were joined together, and it's called the burden of Damascus because God basically rejected those ten tribes. He did not look at them with the same compassion that he did Judah, and so he rejected them and just lopped them in with Damascus. So it's called the burden of Damascus. That is why Ahaziah in the Bible has two different ages for him when he became king. Because though he was a king of Judah, God associated him with Israel. Omri and Ahab and Jezebel and Athaliah. So there's an age of 22 and an age of 42. He was actually 22 years old, but 42 years old in the reign of Omri of Israel because God did not consider him a king of Judah. So when you get to Matthew chapter 1 and you're reading through the kings of Judah in Matthew chapter 1, there's three kings missing because God will visit the iniquities of the fathers, the children of the third and the fourth generation, and three are cut out. Three kings are cut out in Matthew chapter 1 because God associates people with whom they associate. And when there was affinity by Jehoshaphat, that great king of Judah, affinity between his house and Ahab's house, when his son Jehoram married Athaliah, trouble. So God punished. And so I I want to get you that feel and flavor for this chapter of the Bible, how it starts off with the burden of Damascus. Foreigners, Syrians, capital of Syria. But most of it's going to be about Ephraim because the two of them were together, but God looked at them as being rejects. And so he treated them differently. And we're going to get to a very small remnant of Israel. But it is going to be different from the very small remnant of Judah. For those of you that are accountants, is there a difference between 10% and something that is immaterial? Yes. Is there something different between 1% and something that is immaterial? Yes. Something that is immaterial is to be ignored. It's immaterial. That's why it's called immaterial. Just keep that in mind. It'll come up again before we get through these 14 verses. We're going to end on time. I'm going to go through these pretty fast. I just want to give you a flavor and a feel for them. I want you to understand the political dynamics of Isaiah's time and Ahaz's fear to think of the ten tribes joining up. They could produce more soldiers faster than Judah could and then joining with Syria and coming against poor little Judah. I mean, Ahaz was terrified. Do you remember that? The whole heart of Judah was moved. Because Ahaz had taken away their fear of God. But Hezekiah came along and he was able to face Assyria. And he faced Assyria very well. So here we are. And I'm going to read to you the first five verses because there's four parts to Isaiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Syria and Ephraim taken by Assyria. Do not get their names mixed up. Syria and Assyria are unrelated. 
Syria and Ephraim taken or defeated, crushed by Assyria, verses 1 through 5. Then 6 through 8, there's going to be a small saved remnant to repent. Verses 9 through 11 are going to describe again why the nation was overthrown because of their idolatry. And verses 12 through 14 will tell us that that great enemy that came in and destroyed Syria and Ephraim and all the fenced cities of Judah would be taken care of because this is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. Meaning, when somebody spoils us or robs us, there's going to be hell to pay. There's going to be a price to pay. And God's going to exact it of them, and that will be their portion. So the first five verses of Isaiah 17, the burden of Damascus, capital of Assyria, of Syria, oh, capital of Syria, north of Israel, or Ephraim. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aror are forsaken. They shall be for flocks, which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. And it shall be as when the harvestman gathereth the corn, and reapeth the ears with his arm. And it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. Amen and amen. The burden of Damascus. God's judgment given to Isaiah to unload on the Syrians and upon Ephraim attached to them. Damascus is taken away from being a city and it shall be a ruinous heap. That's what Assyria did to it. Assyria came in, crushed Syria first, took the city of Damascus, killed the king who was reason. Remember that from earlier? Chapter 7, R-E-Z-I-N, reason. And it was Pekah, the son of Remaliah, that was the king of Israel. And the two of them were confederates together. But Assyria came in, wrecked the city, wrecked the nation, killed the king. And if that, he was t- Tiglath-Pileser. And then a few years later, just a few years later, Shalmaneser comes with the Assyrians again for another expedition and takes the ten tribes away. Takes a three-year siege from the third year to the sixth year of Hezekiah. And so we, we know the dates because the Bible tells us in Kings and Chronicles about these things. So in chapter 7, remember, in chapters 13 and 14, it was the Medes and the Persians. I hope that you'll learn so that you can, in, the, in your sleep, if somebody hears you talking in your sleep, you're going to be talking about Cyrus the Great, the leader of Persia, and the Medians the, of Media with their leader, Darius, the uncle of Cyrus. Because you'll know all this stuff so well that you'll be, you'll be saying it in your sleep. And I'm going, to, I'm going to get texts and calls of spouses worried. I wouldn't worry. I'd rejoice. Because some of these, Ephraim, I want you to know, when you're reading the Bible and you, and you run into Ephraim, who's under consideration? But remember, chapters 13 and 14 were Cyrus the Great of the Persians and Darius of the Medes taking out Babylon 200 years from Isaiah's life and prophecies. Then, chapters 15 and 16 
was Nebuchadnezzar doing it to Moabites just a hundred years away. This is only a few years away. I called it months earlier just to get your attention because it's very close. Because this is when the Assyrian, remember I'm dealing with three nations now, Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia. So it takes time for those nations to develop. This is, this is Assyria coming in. He's going to get rebuked at the end of this chapter. We like his rebuke. Was there trouble in the evening and peace in the morning? Oh, yes. Yes. When the Lord rebukes, it's really good. It, if you're on the right side. And we always want to be on the right side. Verse 1 is so simple. Damascus is taken away. They can use the present tense. It hadn't even happened yet. It's a prophecy uh, because that's the way prophets speak. Don't, don't, don't count on arguing from every verb tense of a prophet because they like to change. Just like David likes to change first person to second person to third person in his psalms. Just got to get used to it. Enjoy it. Embrace it. This is a prophecy. This is what's coming on Damascus, the capital of Syria, it's taken from being a city. It's no longer the prosperous capital of that kingdom north of Ephraim. It's going to be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. Other cities of a region in Syria, they shall be for flocks. The, the, the inhabitants are going to be killed, driven away, taken captive. Remember what the Assyrians do when they took a nation. They defeated it, killed whoever they needed to kill, took the rest, and moved them into Assyria, planted them in cities, took the inhabitants of those cities, and brought them back and put them in Syria or Ephraim. You know, there's a whole chapter in the Bible about it. Do you know what that chapter, 2 Kings 17, right in the middle of this history, you will have a chapter about those, those Assyrians and Babylonians being brought in from Mesopotamia and put in Samaria. And what happened to them? Lions ate them. So they had to send back to the king of Assyria and say, listen, we got a problem with lions. We think we need a priest for the God of this place. I'm going to say something. You know what? Those immigrants, well, they're smarter than the immigrants we get, but those immigrants were smart. Right. Do you know why? They knew God was involved. Yep. It's like the mariners on the ship with Jonah. Right. Did they know where the issue was? Oh, yeah. They did. Nobody today wants to even admit that there's someone that, to have an issue with us. And it's the Lord. Because they have totally forsaken Him in our country. Do you remember that? The mariners knew what the problem was. They cried out to their gods. And they made everyone on ship cry out to their gods until they found one sleeping. And he said, well, of course, it's my God. It's not yours. He's angry at me. Well, start praying, buddy. Because we're about to go down. It's a great event. It's in 2 Kings 17. It's what happened to this nation of Syria. And so cities were taken, their inhabitants were taken away, and flocks could lie down, and none shall make them afraid. There wasn't anybody there to scare those sheep, because the places were desolate. Verse 3, the fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, the capital at Samaria of the ten tribes, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. The ones that the king of Assyria left, the ones that God left of the Syrians, listen to what it says about them. They shall be as the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Now you can take that to be a descriptive, historical, sincere, honest fact, 
or you can squeeze a little sarcasm into that because how much, an irony, because how much glory did Israel, Israel have at this time? None. Now it's going to say, it's going to get squeezed down in verse 4. In that day it shall come to pass, this is the day of Shalmaneser coming after Israel, Ephraim, that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. Oh, I mean, thin is really thin here. Thin, you can read the newspaper through it. Because it's going to be gleaning thin. It's going to be immaterial thin. It's not going to be 10% thin. If I hand you a, a 2 by 4 and you take away 90% of it, I still can't read the newspaper through it. But if you take something down to where it's immaterial, I can read through it. They wouldn't have any glory. They didn't really have any to, except for some prosperity to go with them anyway because God had deserted them a long time ago because they were worshiping two golden calves. Oh, it's not on that particular map. That's why maps frustrate me. When I want the two golden calves to show up in a map of Ephraim and they're not there, I have to go to the next map. And then you go to the next map and the next map, and so I never get a map that I want to send. But we sent a map that was the best we could find. Because in Dan, at the very top of the ten tribes, and way down at Bethel, they put a golden calf up at Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of Elohim. House El. House of El. They were terrible, the Israelites. Because Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that got the nation cranking after they rejected Rehoboam and formed their own nation and said, what do we have to do with you, sons of Jesse? We don't care about you from Judah. We're going to have our own nation. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, knew that if he did not give them a replacement religion, they would run back to Jerusalem. Right. And so to keep their loyalty, he set up two temples, one at the top of the ten tribes in Dan and the other at the bottom in Bethel, and it was golden calf worship all over again. Unbelievable. Unbelievable idolatry in Bethel. Verse 4 tells us, when the Assyrians get a hold of Ephraim, the glory of Jacob shall be made thin. Well, how thin? Pastor, you keep talking about it being immaterially thin. Okay, verse 5. It shall be as when the harvest man gathereth the corn and reapeth the ears with his arm. And it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. The glory that's going to be left is going to be equal to the gleanings left in a field. The gleanings left in a field are what a man intentionally leaves for the poor, or, in the case of those that don't care about the poor, what they can't easily gather, and it's an accidental loss. It's shrinkage. It's immaterial. Shrinkage isn't immaterial. For those of us that ran restaurants, shrinkage isn't immaterial because the employees could be eating a little more than was offered or was being taken home or whatever. But notice here, it's, what does verse 5 mean? It, their glory will be like when a harvest man gathereth the corn. All that's left is accidental droppings, accidental plants that can't be reached. Or, in the case of loving, caring neighbors, they leave some for the poor, which is a rule of God's nation only when people are being merciful and living righteously. Otherwise, they want everything they can get to maximize their yield for, per acre from their fields, so there's really nothing left. You say, are you sure? Yes, because when I go into the next section, it says, yet gleaning grapes 
shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough. So you've got yourself an olive tree and you back your pickup truck against it four or five times to shake, well, that's how I would do it, shake all the olives out of it and there might be two or, th look at how the Lord words it, I love it, two or three at the top of a crop of olives from an olive tree. I didn't look up how many olives grow in an olive tree. I hate olives so much, I wouldn't put any more research into olives than I had to to understand this verse. And those of you that love olives, I, I love you too. I just don't like olives. I remember a brother a long time ago, a member of this church, that told me they're nothing, they taste nothing but like sacks of sweat. That's what he said. I just wanted to quote him accurately. So, but here, look at, these verses are connected together. They're long. The sentences have many words. But all it is saying is, I am going to judge Damascus and take its cities down, their inhabitants away, leave them ruinous heaps, and flocks will be in the place where there were once people. And I'm going to take Ephraim down. I'm going to make Syria have about as much glory as Ephraim has. And Ephraim doesn't have any glory except two or three olives left in the top of the tree after you back your pickup truck against it five or six times. So it's, you, you can take it any way you want to. God's getting his point across. I am going to reduce you. And the ones of you that I leave in the land are going to be poor with no glory. This is what God can do. He can reduce your glory. He will reduce your glory. How can I... How can I preserve my glory? And whatever that glory may be, it could be agricultural prosperity by giving him glory. Giving him glory. Being like Nebuchadnezzar. Was that the issue with Nebuchadnezzar? He was going to lose his glory and be put out to pasture like an animal for seven years? How could he preserve it? There was a way to preserve it. Let my counsel be acceptable to thee, O king, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. And he could have preserved, be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Now see, the word tranquility there was, everything will stay the same. You'll have your glory. The Lord can reduce us. He can reduce our nation. He will. He can reduce our church. He will if we're not obedient. He can reduce your family, my family, if we're not obedient. He can reduce our marriages. He can reduce our health. He can reduce our souls if we're not obedient. He did this. Ephraim is his people. There were 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. They were his people, his church. But this is what he would do to them. Let's come to verses 6 through 8. I hope that you can understand verses 1 through 5. The burden of Damascus and the cities being reduced to, to rubble. And then the fortress being taken away from Ephraim, which was Samaria, their capital and the kingdom from Damascus, and there's only a remnant of Syria left, and they're going to be like the children of Israel with their glory greatly reduced, and the glory of Jacob's going to be reduced and made so thin and so lean, it's going to be like all that's left in a harvest, which is immaterial, because a man does not leave his field. A farmer that depends on eating that field and selling the produce of that field does not leave the field until everything is taken. I'm not talking about the rules of God in the first five books of the Bible. And he, he, he doesn't leave until everything is taken away. So there's nothing left, except, like the little example the Lord's given us, two or three berries 
And so we come to verses 6 through 8. Yet, gleaning berries, gleaning grapes, excuse me, there's grapes and berries in this sentence. Yet, gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of hosts. Saith the Lord God of hosts. At that day, just hold on, at that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of hosts. And he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. Amen and amen. Why did I misread two verses? Because I'm trying to make a point to you to appreciate that while God judged Israel, well, the ten tribes, while God judged Ephraim, notice what he calls himself by the prophet. Do you like that? Because he would preserve a remnant and that remnant was going to repent. And that remnant is described right here in verses 6 through 8. Verse 7 is the Holy One of Israel, your God. He's not just the Holy One of Judah. He's the Holy One of Israel in verse 7. He's the Lord God of Israel in verse 6. He's not just the Lord God of hosts. Do you know how many times it's the Lord God of hosts? But it's the Lord God of Israel. For them to embrace the fact he is our God. Why did we ever desert him for golden calves? And yet the Lord's going to leave a few. Now this few, when you look at the history of Ephraim, ten tribes, Judah, two tribes, remember in Isaiah chapter 6, there was a statistical number used, a tenth. No one leaves 10% of their yield in a, uh, per acre or, or per field in a field. No one. They don't even leave 1%. They get everything they possibly can because they've had the whole year of capital investment and labor put into that field. They want every piece of fruit, produce, grain out of it that they can get. But here it's two or three berries, four or five, to make a point because when God finally was fed up with Judah because of Manasseh, that's why we sing in our hymnal by John Kent. He likes to say, sins like Manasseh or Mary or worse than they. And that's how we should be able to sing that. Manasseh was the worst king of Judah. But even then, when he sent Nebuchadnezzar and leveled the city, he took a whole great number of them back to Babylon, church still intact, and they were to pray for the peace of Babylon for the years they were there because they would have peace and they would be brought back. And a 45,000 member church came back, rebuilt the city and rebuilt the temple. This is just two or three or four or five berries. Because usually in the Bible, it's just going to say Israel's over. They're gone. But it's a very, very small remnant. Using the words in the, their most extreme form. You, ho hopefully you can understand the first three verses are describing what God's going to do to Syria and to Israel. Verses 4, 5 
are telling you that their glory is going to be greatly reduced to where it's only gleaning glory, immaterial, just immaterial glory left. It's so small. And verse 6 is going to give you the explanation for verses 4 and 5 that it's just going to be gleaning, immaterial, glory left, and favor from God left. But He will be their God, the Lord God of Israel. And at that day, it's, a, it's terrible. Why does this ever have to happen to us? If I were to ask you to tell me or to tell your spouse or to examine yourself right now, when, give me the top five times when you were the closest to the Lord. I'm going to say that three to five of them are when you were in trouble. Isn't that our stinking nature? Yes. Prosperity and blessing does not lead us to God. Trouble and difficulty does. And so it is here. I do not like, verse 7, in, the, in this sense, at that day shall a man look to his maker. Can't we look to our maker and look to our Savior and look to our God and love him before the day comes? The day will come. The day will come. It might be the rich man in hell, but the day will come. Let's go ahead and look now. Let's not be like this. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had set up golden calves against this God, but they would have respect to him. Can we respect him now? Everything we, everything we do in this church is by design to give respect to God. Do you think I like this? Do you think I wear this seven days a week? Do you think I wear one to bed just to make sure? No. Everything we do. Why do we have a little black book called a Psalter? Everything we do. Why do we meet in the back room for prayer? And thank you for starting that and running it for six years. 300 Sundays, Dad. The hymnals we have, everything we do is by design to do this. To look to his maker and to have respect to the Holy One of Israel. What can we do privately? What can you do privately to have more respect for the Holy One of Israel? Let's lift God up higher and put ourselves down lower so that we don't have to have verses 1 through 6 happen in our lives to get our attention. It's a side point, but we better be gathering some side points. I appreciate those of you who told me that you appreciated the first four words of chapter 15 and me translating them, and he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Or they wouldn't have had this enemy 400 years later. And he shall not look to the altars. Look at verse 8. Isn't that wonderful? He shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands. You know, he took such pride in his craftsmanship of this altar, but he's not going to look at it anymore with any delight or pleasure. Neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. Can we look? I love the play on words. I'm very simple. 
I love every individual word. Did you like the daughter versus the daughters that I shared with you earlier? Do you like the Lord God of Israel instead of hosts? Do you like look and respect in seven versus look and respect in eight? Can we get over ourselves in verse eight to give God all the look to verse seven? Do you like little things like that? See, I, I love every word of God. I, I do. I don't understand them all. I wish I understood them all. You pray for the Lord to drop fire from heaven called Isaiah 18. I've put so much time into Isaiah 18. I've put an average of 75 minutes per verse of the 44 verses of 15, 16, 17, and 18, and 18 has taken half of those. I just gave you an average. 18 is the most obscure chapter in Isaiah. I have so much material on it, but I don't know which material's right. right. And I, I just may tell you, this nation sent ambassadors to this nation, and they put their army together, and God cut it down to size, so they sent a gift to Jerusalem. You know, that could get us into 19 really fast. Because I just gave you chapter 18. But when it says, a land beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, <laughs> ours, I'm nothing. We just want God to show us mercy. Right. We just want God to show us mercy. I want His mercy. So I want to forget looking to anything I've done and having respect to anything I've done and I want you to do the same and let us put verse 7 into practice before we have to get verses 1 through 6. Let's come to verses 9 through 11. It's the third part of Isaiah 17. In that day shall his strong cities... It's, look, it's looking at the same judgment by Assyria from a different angle. Verses 6 through 8 are of the little remnant that repented. Verses 9 through 11 are looking back as to why it had to happen in the first place. And so it expands on their idolatry, as you'll pick up very easily from reading it. Isaiah, Israel's, Ephraim's idolatry brought the judgment that a few were preserved from in verses 6 through 8, that the rest were destroyed in in verses 1 through 5. The prophet goes back and forth sometimes. Remember, in the chapters we've covered all the way from chapter 1, there would be little insertions of mercy. Little insertions. Remember those? Yeah. What do you think 6 through 8 was? Oh, he's going he's gonna to save himself two or three olive berries. I want to be that olive berry. Yeah, right. You can be that olive berry. Don't live like Israel did. Now back to why it happened to them. In that day, verse 9 of chapter 17, Ephraim, the ten tribes, called Israel in the north. In that day shall his strong cities be as a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel. And there shall be desolation. Assyria is going to come cut the nation down to the ground. And if there's anything left like a forsaken and bow an uppermost branch it's going to be left by the mercy of God to save two or three berries but here it's called because of the children of Israel he will show his people a little bit of mercy by preserving a forsaken bow the Assyrian army is going to cut everything down to the ground 
and a little this or that, they might leave. But instead of using the berries of the olive tree, they're using lumberjack terminology. There's going to be a forsaken bough that they left. One branch to show you the smallness of it. Because, here's the explanation in verse 10, because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation. And he moves to the second person, condemning Ephraim, because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength. That's having respect to God. We forget him. We don't look to him. And we're not mindful of the rock of thy strength. Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shalt set it with strange slips. In the day shalt thou make thy plant to grow and in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Okay, you do not want to give respect to God. You do not want to be mindful of the rock of your strength. I'm in verse eight, verse 10. I'm in verse 10. You have forgotten the God of your salvation. You're not mindful of the rock of your strength. When that happens, you're going to lose your cities, like verse 9 told. And all of your agricultural efforts, all of your professional efforts, all of your financial efforts will not work out. You will earn wages to put them into a bag with holes in it. That is what is being said, but it's describing it not from the easy one of putting wa wages into a bag with holes in it. It's describing it from an agricultural perspective of creative diligence not bearing fruit. And if you were to go read Haggai chapter 1 and 2, but mainly 1, and Malachi chapter 3, when God blows against professional efforts, they do not produce. Right. And that's what this is. They weren't bankers. They were farmers. And notice the judgment. Therefore, in the middle of verse 10, Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants. You will find the best plants for the best yield and the best profit in the nation. And you'll plant them. And shalt set it with strange slips. What in the world? Is that a woman's undergarment? Strange slips, shoots, cuttings off other plants and trees. You will find strange ones, unique. You know, everybody wants to go and find the unique flower, the unique shoots you're going to plant. And you're going to set pleasant plants with unique foreign plants that you're going to go diligently and creatively find to put in the ground to have the ultimate farm. In the day shalt thou make thy plant to grow. You're going to weed it. You're going to water it. You're going to use insecticides on it. You're going to do everything possible. You're going to put a scarecrow up. You're going to be the scarecrow. You're going to do everything to make your plant to grow and to preserve it. And in the morning shalt thou make thy seed to flourish. You'll get up in the morning and water it. You'll do everything necessary for it. So there's all this creative diligence put forth and brethren, every one of us need to assess our lives by this. Is Isaiah 18 taking me so much work because I need to do more of the verses about minding the rock of my salvation? I'm doing it to me instead of doing it to you by name. Every one of us 
need to examine ourselves. Have we forgotten the God of our salvation in verse 10 and not been mindful of the rock of thy strength? Don't, I'm not whining about chapter 18. I'll give you whatever God gives me about chapter 18. And I'll do my best for you. Everyone knows that's ever read the book of Isaiah and every commentator knows it's the most obscure chapter in the, in the book, but that's irrelevant right now. Right now, I want you to think, and I've, I use myself as an example, every time our glory is cut back, every time our ability is cut back, every time our production is cut back, we've got to ask ourselves, is it because I have forgotten the God of my salvation and not been mindful of the rock of my strength? Therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and shalt set it with strange slips. You're going to have some foreign, unique, exotic cuttings that you're going to grow up as well. You're going to work in the daytime to make your plants to grow. In the morning, you're going to do whatever's necessary for your seed to flourish. But you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a heap. You're going to get a heap. But in the day you harvest your heap, it is going to be hopelessness. Called here, grief and desperate sorrow. That's the word of the Lord to us. Yep. I hope you see it. It's, it's, so, it's, it's simple. When I look at the words desperate sorrow, it's not just sorrow because we've already had the word grief used. It's going to be a day of grief, pain and trouble of soul, and anguish of mind, and of desperate sorrow. Sorrow that you know is not going away. Your wife might be raped in front of your eyes and your children hauled off in a different band of captives and then you killed. Desperate sorrow. You say, God wouldn't do that to anyone. God did that to his church because this is the church of Israel, of Ephraim. I hope you understand 17. We come to the last three verses of it. Does that sound like God let someone spoil Israel? Does it sound like God let someone rob Israel? Did that same army come into Judah and spoil and rob it? Well, we need three verses of what God's going to do to them. Because remember, I gave you the last sentence from verse 14. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. Habakkuk went crazy about what I'm preaching to you right now. If you want to understand Habakkuk, Habakkuk looked at God sending the Babylonians to punish Judah, and he said, it isn't fair. It isn't right. Thou art a God of purer eyes than to behold evil. How in the world can you let men that are worse than us Come in and judge us. I'm telling this is Habakkuk. One is him complaining. Chapter one. There's three chapters. Chapter one is him complaining. Chapter two is God explaining. Chapter three is him praising. And you know it better lead to that, right? When you call God in question in chapter one that it's not right for the Chaldeans to be punishing Jews. So chapter one is him complaining. Chapter two is God explaining. And chapter three is him praising. That's why it ends up with, though you were to destroy me six different economic ways, 
the Lord is my strength and I'm going to dance on my high places. You, that's how it ends. It's just, it just works up. It's beautiful. I'm trying to set you up right now so that I can just do this in two minutes and we can go home. The last three verses are just wonderful. Somebody was messing with Israel. Who was it? It was Assyria. Who was messing with Judah? It was Assyria. Who took Syria out? It was Assyria. All this is about Assyria. They were, we were told in chapter 8 that they were like water. They were like a river. Because Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, is on the Tigris. Babylon, the capital of the Babylonian Empire, is on the Euphrates. Literally. Over it. Remember? And so it's a river. And in Isaiah chapter 8, God said through Isaiah, that river is going to overflow its banks. And it is going to rise... And it is going to drown Ephraim and Syria. And it's going to rise up to here on Judah. I hope you remember. It'll rise up to the neck. But it'll leave the head. Do you know when you're in high water what you do? You stand on your tiptoes, especially if you're 5'10 or under. You have to. Up to the neck. Woe to the multitude of many people, which make a noise like the noise of the seas, and to the rushing of nations, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters! Exclamation point. Woe to this gathering army of confederate nations of the Assyrian Empire. When we use the word empire, we mean a collection of many nations. How many nations did the kingdom of Persia have? Do you remember anybody from the Bible? 127. Just keep that in mind. So it's not, when we say Assyria, we don't mean a nation. We mean an empire of nations coming. And so, woe to the multitude of many people. This is God inserting some more kindness and comfort to the Jews. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters. Just as it was described in chapter 8. They would overflow everything. They would be a tsunami. You would not resist them. You could only run from them. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them. And they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Can you see a frisbee out in your yard with a tornado in your yard at the same time? Does the frisbee get up and move? It rolls. Can you see a tumbleweed in, our, in a western with the wind blowing a tumbleweed across the ground? Can you see all that? that that's all this is. It's word pictures. To, to get the impact of the Assyrian army against Ephraim and against Judah. Right. The nations shall rush. But God's going to rebuke them, and they're going to flee. Did the Babylonians flee? Hold on. Did the Babylonians flee? Nope. They were caught at home, raising the wrong vessels to toast their gods of wood and of stone. They didn't flee. Was there an army before them that fled? Oh, yes. Did he flee with shamed face? Yes. Did he have to go back and explain to 185,000 mothers what he had done to their sons 
Was the whole thing a disaster? Does it say he went 700 miles pronto? 700 miles. Sennacherib had to go 700 miles from Jerusalem to Nineveh, but he went back to Nineveh. I love it when our God rebukes. But brethren, you never want him to rebuke you. He knows your worst fears. He can turn your life upside down. He can take away your tranquility. Give him his glory. Give him everything he wants. Give it to him today. Give, him, give it to him a little bit more than you've ever given him before. But God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. This is Assyria. It didn't happen to Babylon. Assyria took down Syria. Assyria took down Ephraim. Assyria took everything but Jerusalem of Judah. And we know that God rebuked Assyria. How did God rebuke Assyria? By Isaiah chapter 10. You're nothing but an axe in my hand. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a saw in my hand. Who do you think you are? That's just, I'm just warming up. That's Isaiah 10. How about Isaiah 37? The virgin daughter of Zion hath laughed thee to scorn. She hath tossed her head at thee, buddy. That is a rebuke. And what happened with that rebuke? There was trouble in the evening, but there wasn't trouble in the morning because there were 185,000 dead corpses. So verse 14, Behold at evening tide trouble, and before the morning he is not. <laughs> His army is destroyed by the rebuke of our God. So as we read this, and we see Isaiah slipping in about Israel, he's going to leave two or three because of the children of Israel. Did you see that? Because of the children of Israel? He's going to leave two or three berries, and they're going to repent, and they're going to be mindful of the rock of their salvation, and he'll rebuke the Assyrians, and they're going to blow away 700 miles, the ones that are left. The ones that are left are going to run away 700 miles to get back to Nineveh. And in the evening there was trouble. In the morning he is not. And so what do we say to all that? We say, this is the portion of them that spoil us. Now notice, it turns to us. This is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. Let's line ourselves up with the people of God. Let's line ourselves up with Jerusalem above and know that he'll take care of us and he will revenge us. And this is the word of the Lord. You promise me that in verse 7, you will look to your maker and have respect to the Holy One of Israel this week? That according to verse 8, you will not look to the things that you have done, nor respect anything about yourself, but all about him? And in verse 10, you will not forget the God of your salvation, but you will be mindful of the rock of your strength before you worry about what creative, diligent things you're doing in your new engineering job or any other job. Let us do those things. And may the Lord preserve us so that when judgment comes, they're going to get rebuked for it and we'll obtain his praise. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. This is Isaiah 17. Amen.